There's a ceremony of sorts that takes place in many families with small children, which makes it, it marks a very important transition in the child's life. The ceremony has different details and procedures in each family with each child. Sometimes it's a happy moment for the child. Oftentimes it's unsettling. It can even be a moment of tears for a child. What is this transition? What is this ceremony that I'm talking about? It is the day that goodbye is said to the bottle. The day the bottles are taken away. We looked at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 last time. And if you were here, you might remember which it, it, it is the beginning of the third great warning passage in the letter of Hebrews. And the author, he tells his readers that he has a lot that he would like to tell them about our amazing Savior Jesus and his priestly work. But it's difficult to do because these believers have not been growing in their knowledge of Christ and their salvation as they should. They've been lazy about their relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of them have been Christians long enough, he said, that they ought to be able to teach others by now, but instead they need to be instructed again and again about the most basic elements of the Christian faith, the ABCs of Christianity. They are not yet ready, he says, for solid food. They are still drinking milk from a bottle. They are way past the time that they should have said goodbye to the bottle. Well, today we are picking up in Hebrews chapter 6, in the first verse, and this continues on in this same passage that we began last week. It says in verse one, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Now, we might expect the author to go into an extended teaching on the ABCs of the faith at this point in the letter, but that's not what he does. He simply lists some of the things that he considers elementary teaching, some of the basic things that they ought to know by now, and then intends to move forward rather than rehashing these things again. He is effectively taking the bottle away. It's time for them to start drinking from a big boy cup and eating big boy food. Or big girl cup and big girl food. <laughs> the author lists six of these elementary teachings in three pairs. This is not a comprehensive list of what are considered elementary teachings of the Christian faith. These are examples of what he's talking about. And although the author of Hebrews is choosing not to spend any time talking about these things at this point, other than just listing them, we're going to take a bit of time and talk about them before moving on. So 
the, the first thing that he mentions here is repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Repentance, repenting, repent, it means to make a fundamental change in our mind and attitude, which is then expressed in how we live our life. Repentance is one of the basic first steps for coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The basic message of John the Baptist, you might remember, in his preaching was, repent and believe the good news, he would say. The people who heard Peter's first preaching after the death and resurrection of Jesus, they asked him, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent, believe, and be baptized. Choosing to change the direction of our life is a fundamental for becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Repentance from acts that lead to death. There's some difference of opinion about how this first phrase should be translated from the Greek into English and understood. The NIV translates it as repentance from acts that lead to death. A number of other English Bible translations translated as repentance from dead works, which can carry a bit of a different meaning. Now, rather than it being an either-or kind of thing, though, it should be and is a both-and kind of thing. Both are true and essential elements of the Christian faith. So firstly, repentance from acts that lead to death means we are to repent of willful, sinful Behaviors. These things may seem pleasant in the moment, but they lead eventually to death rather than to life. We are to turn away from our sin and toward the Lord. Now, if we look at it this other way, repentance from dead works, this is another way of translating the Greek into English. And again, as I said, it carries a little different meaning. It it implies turning away from self-justifying morality, which can have an appearance of godliness on the surface, but it lacks power to truly change us. These works, no matter how good they may appear to be, are ultimately dead works because they don't produce life in us. Instead, they delude us into thinking that we are spiritually alive by our own efforts. This would have been a particularly relevant issue for many of the people that the letter of Hebrews was originally written to because many of them are former followers of the Jewish religion before becoming Christians. You'll remember the letter of Hebrews is addressed mainly to Jewish Christians or Jewish believers, people that were part of the Jewish religion and have now come to faith in Christ as their Savior. The Jewish religion, as widely practiced by people, was a religion of works. A person sought to prove their worthiness before God by following the rules and doing good works, hopefully earning their spot in heaven. Well, these are dead works that need to be repented of when a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are no longer trusting in the quality of our own performance but trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. This is still relevant in our own day. And we talk about that here quite often, but it is commonly held as a belief by people in our culture that if you are good enough, you will earn a spot in heaven. 
If I ask you the question, how does a person get into heaven? And if you answer by being a good person, then you have just flunked Christianity 1A. We do not get into heaven by being a good person. Being a good person may be what someone has taught you about how to get into heaven, but it is not what Bible-based Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that we are separated from God because of our sin, making us spiritually dead. And this deadness and separation are so severe that no amount of us being good could ever bridge the gap and make us alive spiritually and brought back into a good relationship with God. We need an outside source of life to be injected into us, namely the life of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It says here, repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Faith in God. We, 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 we repent from willful, sinful behavior and self-justifying works, and we receive Christ-given salvation through faith. We trust in the salvation God gives us in Christ instead of trying to create our own salvation by our own merits. Faith, as used here, moves our dependence from self to God. He is the one who saves us, who imparts spiritual life to us, and who gives us the power and the will to live a life that pleases him. When I say I have faith in Jesus Christ, I'm saying that I am depending on him for my salvation. I am getting into heaven based on his resume, not mine. A Christian is to pursue a life of good works. But the motivation for doing those good works is fundamentally different. We're not saved because of our good works. We do good works because we are saved. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The why is important and not just what we're doing. The next pair that the writer of Hebrews mentions here is instructions about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands. Because many of the people to whom this letter was originally written to had converted from the Jewish religion to Christianity, the author, he makes mention of cleansing rites, which refers to these various washings practiced in the Jewish religion, compared and contrasted with water baptism in Christianity. The laying on of hands signify a number of different things, both in the Jewish religion and in Christianity. The basic idea is usually a transferring or giving of something to someone, such as receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving a spiritual gift, being anointed and set apart for a special purpose, receiving a blessing, 
Well, just as people were clinging to the idea that being a good person is what gets us into heaven, people were also clinging to and trusting in these various ceremonial rites to accomplish for them what only Jesus Christ can do and has done for us. And there are many people even in our own day, aren't there, who trust in various ceremonial, religious, or spiritual rites rather than having a simple faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the complete solution to our problem. Nothing needs to be added to him and what he's done for us. Nothing can improve upon what he's done for us. If you're doing something that helps you live a more devoted life to Jesus, that's fine. But don't ever let whatever that thing is become a requirement for your salvation, a necessary add-on to Jesus, hold power over you that only Jesus should have in your life, or be some kind of a go-between or replacement for Jesus in some way in your life. If you're trusting in something in a religious or spiritual way, in addition to Jesus, you need to stop it. Statues, jewelry, rocks, shrines, relics, books, people, get rid of all of it. There's only one that you should be trusting in, Jesus Christ, nothing more. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The third pair that the author of Hebrews mentions is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead is part of a Christian's hope for the future. There's more than this life. Death is not the end of everything. We are going to live forever. And in the same way that Jesus Christ died and came back to life, we too are going to be resurrected from the dead to live forever with him. Now I'm talking to Christians when I say that. And at our, res at our resurrection, we're going to receive a new body with a new nature, free from the sin that drags us down all of the time in this life and this body, preventing us from fully realizing our new life in Christ. Now, a key idea that comes out of the truth of the resurrection is that we are not a body with a soul, but rather a soul with a body. We live on even though our present body dies. Our body is not us. It's something we live in. The Bible talks as certain about the coming judgment of God against evil as it does about the coming salvation of God's people. And this is not a popular topic, and understandably so. And a person can be branded a lunatic fringe psycho for even mentioning the subject of eternal judgment nowadays. But that doesn't change the truth and the reality of it. 
But I want to say that there is no reason for any person to face the eternal judgment of God because Jesus invites all of us to come to him and receive forgiveness and salvation. Verse 4, Hebrews 6, it says, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. We're moving here into the main part of the warning of this passage. Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. The person being described here sounds like a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Whether this person is truly saved and born again as a child of God is not clear and something the Bible scholars have debated for centuries with one another. I think the author purposely leaves it ambiguous. So everyone who reads these words will be forced to take the warning to heart and consider it carefully. This warning is intended for all of us to soberly consider. It says it's impossible for this person who's fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Taking the whole of Scripture into account, this passage seems to be talking about a person who, by external indicators, appears to have become a Christian, accepting the Christian solution for the human problem, and then later chooses to reject the Christian solution, returns again to their old worldview and salvation system, or adopts a different one of some kind. And the author basically says that if a person rejects Christ and the salvation that he provides, there's nothing left Jesus Christ is God's one and only solution to save us from our sin and give us a new life in the future. If we decide we don't want it, there's nowhere else to go. God says, I'm trying to save you, but if you don't want it, I don't know what to say. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. For those who had converted from the Jewish religion to Christianity, the author is warning them to not turn back to the Jewish religion. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Jewish religion was pointing to. And as we get further into the book of Hebrews, he'll be driving that home for us. He'll be pointing that out to us. He'll be explaining that to us. The Christ was the hope of Israel. Jesus is the Christ. Reject him and you have nothing left. The historical parallel from Jewish history during the days of Moses that the author may have in mind here is the story 
in Numbers 14. You might remember that he made reference to this same story back in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Moses had led the people to the border of the promised land of Canaan, and then they chose a group of men to go into the land and investigate it. The land was all that the Lord had promised that it would be. It was truly a land flowing with milk and honey. The people, they tasted the sweet fruit of the land. They shared in the blessings and the gifts of God all along the way while getting there. They had eaten the manna from heaven and drank the water from the rock. They had been given the opportunity to experience God's promises firsthand again and again. But after all of that, they chose to turn away and not enter the land because of the apparent obstacles that were in front of them. They chose to trust their own fears rather than trust the promise that God had made to them. The Lord told them that because they refused to trust him and obey him, they wouldn't be allowed to go in then. He told Moses to turn the people around and lead them back into the desert. But rather than obeying the Lord, even in that moment, the people decided they had made a mistake and they were going to go into the land after all. Even though the Lord had told them at that point, don't do it. I won't be with you. Well, they tried to go into the land, but they were badly defeated and driven out by the Canaanites. The Lord was not with them. The author of Hebrews is giving us a solemn warning that we need to take Jesus Christ and our salvation seriously. We need to seek to make progress in our faith. We need to reject all notions of seeking salvation from any other source other than Jesus Christ. If the people of Moses' day who neglected the good things of God and refused to enter into the promised land were cut off from going in later, how can we expect to escape if we ignore such a great salvation as the author of Hebrews said back in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3? We would be crucifying Jesus, the Son of God, all over again and disgracing him before the watching world. Verse 7. It says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those from, or for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless, and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So the author uses this analogy to help explain his meaning. The land is professing Christians. The rain is all the good things that the Lord provides to produce and nurture a spiritual life and growth in our lives, such as the things mentioned in verses 4 and 5. Enlightenment, the heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit, the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. Land that produces a useful crop receives the blessing of God, it says here. But the land that produces only thorns and thistles is in danger of being cursed. In the end, the land will have to be burned off, cleared away, since there's nothing good that has grown. Now, we all feel implicated by the words of verses 4 through 8 here on some level. It's impossible not to feel implicated in some way, right? 
I mean, these, these are uncomfortable words to read. But the writer doesn't stop here. Thankfully, he quickly moves to encourage us in the next verses. In verse 9, he says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Even though the author voices this scary, uncomfortable, awful warning, he says he's convinced of better things in the case of his readers, things that are associated with salvation. See, it's important that verses 9 through 12 be included in any reading or discussion of the content of verses 4 through 8. They have to go together. Leaving these verses out is like only reading the part of the story that brings you up to the precipice of danger and then never finishes the story in the happy ending. Verse 10, it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. The, the Lord has a better memory than the proverbial elephant. He remembers every good thing you and I have ever done because we love him. Every act of kindness and mercy, every difficult act of obedience, he remembers all of it. Every little thing. The Lord is very generous with his acknowledgments of the things that we've done. He's not unjust or unfair or mean. He's good and kind and loving. He knows our heart and the good intentions that we have. Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Assurance of salvation is a blessing reserved for the Christian walking with his or her God. The Lord wants us to have his peace and his joy. But the Christian who has turned away from the Lord and is choosing to do their own thing rather than seeking to live an obedient life to the Lord has little reason to feel secure about their salvation. I mean, they feel uneasy in their heart for a reason. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us the blessing of peace when we're living a willfully disobedient life. But when we're walking with the Lord, His peace and His joy carry us in life, and we feel hopeful about our future with Him, knowing that we're His child. Verse 12, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the summarizing statement for the whole passage from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through Hebrews 6, 12. This whole passage here. This verse says in a nutshell what the author has been driving at throughout the passage. He says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The, the word translated lazy here, it's the same word that's translated up in 5.11 as no longer try, those who are no longer trying to understand. He says it's hard to, to, 
tell you, tell you guys about this stuff because you're not trying to understand. You're lazy. He's telling them. And here he says, we don't want you to be lazy. So we see this same Greek word, nathros, lazy, sluggish, dull, not caring, functioning as bookends, appearing in the first and in the last verses of this passage. So there's no doubt about the message and the challenge being laid before us. He's telling us, let's follow the example of imitate the followers of Jesus throughout the centuries who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises of God. In closing, I want to say there's a balance in Scripture here. It warns the arrogant sinner and the self-assured moralist that their souls are in danger. At the same time, it reassures the humble believer that nothing can ever take them out of the Lord's hands. You're safe in His hands. Romans 8.31 Don't we love this passage? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this difficult passage that that warns us, it, it rings our bell, Lord. It tells us, hey, wake up, you guys. Don't take these things for granted. Press forward in your faith, in your walk with me. Lord, we thank you for that, that you, like a loving father, give us a kick in the behind once in a while. Say, hey, you guys, you need to get going. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your loving discipline and for your loving provision and care for us, Lord. We, we're so thankful that we are not illegitimate children, but we are the children of the living God. And nothing can separate us from you, Lord. We thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.